Alright, we'll start. Thank you for coming. Welcome to the London School of Economics. Welcome to the Philosophy at LSE public lecture. Uh, this is sponsored by the Forum for European Philosophy, as well as the Center for Philosophy of Natural and Social Sciences, as well as the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method. Uh, and tonight, it's my pleasure to introduce my colleague and my friends, Gabriel Volner. Uh, Dr. Volner got his PhD from University College London in 2011. That wasn't enough, he had to do more. <laughs> so he went on in 2012, he got an MPP from the, uh, Harvard University. And in 2013, we had a very good fortune to have him join us in the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method as an assistant professor. He's written on topics like global justice, economics, <laughs> equality, fairness. Tonight, his talk is on uh, justice and finance. And I hope you'll join me in welcoming our speaker tonight, Dr. Gabriel Bonner. You can't see? Okay, then we switch it off. I was in two minds about the light thing. Um, you have to promise not to fall asleep then. What's better? So thank you very much uh, for coming. Thank you very much for the introduction. Thank you very much for coming in particular, because you know you won't be able to get home after this. Uh, <laughs> so thanks for coming. <laughs> so the topic of my talk is justice in finance, the normative case for an international financial transaction tax. And the purpose of the talk really is <coughs> twofold. Um, on the one hand side, I want to bring the perspective of political philosophy to bear on a question um, or a debate that has chiefly been a debate between economists and politicians, namely a debate about finance, um, and in particular a debate about the policy proposal of international financial transaction tax, sometimes called a Tobin tax, sometimes more polemically called a Robin Hood tax. And many economists and politicians have had arguments about that tax proposal. Right. Economists have disagreed about what the likely impact of such a tax would be, um, for example, on trade volumes um, on international financial markets, what the impact would be um, on economic and financial stability. And politicians have disagreed about whether such a proposal would be feasible, whether it could be implemented in the context of the European Union, whether it should be implemented um, even if not everyone joined um, the tax proposal on a global level. Um, disagreement about whether or not it's an adequate response to the current financial and economic crisis. And what I want to do is, as I said, bring the perspective of political philosophy to bear on these questions. Show that political philosophers actually have something interesting to say on that policy debate that is going on between economists and politicians. And I want to argue that international financial transaction tax actually is a good idea um, from the point of view of political philosophy. There's a justice-based argument to be made in defense of an international financial transaction tax. The second aim of my talk is to start filling what's currently a bit of a lacuna, namely, there isn't much political philosophy um, when it comes to finance. Um, Brian mentioned I'm working on questions of global justice, and many political philosophers are working on justice and trade, for example, but there's hardly anything on justice in finance. And I think um, it's important to think about what's required by justice in the context of finance. So the second aim of my talk is to outline what I think 
is a framework for thinking about questions of justice in the context of international finance. The claim that I wanted you to convince you of is that the proposal of an international financial transaction tax is actually an adequate and feasible policy instrument for making the international financial system more just. That's different from the argument that people sometimes make in defense of the international financial transaction tax. So I think an argument you often hear is that an international financial transaction tax would generate enormous revenues which could then be used to achieve some independent important aid, for example, fight global poverty. You could use that money to combat climate change and so on. My argument will be slightly different. I'll argue that international financial transaction tax is actually necessary to bring the practice of international finance into line with the normative requirements that apply to international finance. So I think the existence of the international financial system gives rise to a particular moral problem. Um, the international financial system stands in need of moral justification, and an international financial transaction tax will make sure that this justification is actually forthcoming. So the structure of my argument is threefold. I proceed in three steps. I firstly try to outline or sketch a framework for thinking about questions of justice in the context of international finance. I secondly argue that an international financial transaction tax would remedy the justificatory deficits from which the international financial system is currently suffering. And I finally argue that an international financial transaction tax is superior um, to important policy alternatives and that the most important objections to an international financial transaction tax can actually be met. So each of these steps proceeds in a number of smaller steps or sub-steps outlining or sketching a framework for thinking about justice and finance. And I firstly briefly look at the practice of international finance as it currently exists because I believe one has to have some grasp of the subject matter before advancing a normative argument. So I look at the practice and theory of international finance, um, identify the features which I think are normatively significant or normatively relevant in the practice of international finance as it currently exists. I'll argue that that practice stands in need of justification, um, and I'll argue that the justification will have to take a particular form. I then make the case for international financial transaction tax show that the current system doesn't offer the justification that would be needed that an international financial transaction tax actually promises to remedy these deficits um, and then finally respond to objections and briefly talk about alternatives to an international financial transaction tax. So let's begin by looking at the theory and practice of international finance to understand what exactly we have in mind or talk about um, when we ask questions about justice in the context of the international financial system. So briefly, the theory of international finance or the international financial system. Um, and this is really economics, international economics 101. That's a textbook case for why there should be such a thing as an international financial system, why it is a good thing, a good idea to have an international financial system. And the first argument that economists often make in defense of financial markets could be securities markets, could be derivative markets, currency markets. The first argument that economists make is that financial markets or an international financial system actually facilitates mutually beneficial exchanges between individuals with different needs for financial resources. Um, you could be an individual just as a household and you're looking to earn a return on your savings. What you do is you go to financial markets, you bring your savings to financial markets. 
Um, you might be a firm or a company and you rely on financial markets because you need to invest, you want to build a factory, employ people, and so on. What you do is you turn to financial markets. You might be a government um, which decides to spend more than it currently earns in taxes. Where do you get that money from? You turn to financial markets. But the financial markets match savers and investors. They match individuals with different needs for financial resources, and they make sure that the financial resources that exist within an economy are put to their best use, to their most efficient, most effective use. You could be a borrower, you could be a lender, you could be a saver, an investor, financial markets, match these two different groups of individuals um, leading to economic growth, everyone is better off as a consequence. The second argument of theory is that financial markets are a good thing to have um, because international financial markets International financial markets in particular reduce the risk usually associated with economic activity. Right? If you think about it in terms of being a private saver, um, you may want to diversify your portfolio, um, not to have all your eggs in one basket. Financial markets um, can serve the purpose of an insurance policy, for example. Or if you're a company um, who's doing business in a different location with a different currency, um, you may want to hedge yourself against currency risks and you turn to financial markets. So financial markets are important to reduce the risk that is inevitably associated with economic activity, um, with activity within an economy. That's the argument for financial markets um, in economic theory. Simplified, of course, but I think that's the basic reasoning for why one should have financial markets to begin with. Now, I think it's also important to understand what the current existing practice of international finance actually looks like. Right? What kind of animal is the international financial system as it currently exists? And I think two types of observations characterize the international financial system <coughs> as it currently exists. Um, and what I mean by the current international financial system is the international financial system as it has emerged since the early 1970s, right? since the end of um, Bretton Woods. And one defining characteristic, I believe, is almost perfect capital mobility. Right? There's capital account convertibility. Capital can move freely um, between different locations. Right? There are hardly any locations on the movement of capital. The transaction costs um, are very low. So I think it's fair to assume almost perfect capital mobility as characterizing um, the current international financial system. The second important feature is that the volumes that are traded in international financial markets um, have increased tremendously. So I think last year, the value of the volume of financial transactions globally within three days was the value equivalent to the value um, of all trading goods and services globally over the context of a year. Right? So almost, um, almost by a factor 100 is the value of financial uh, transactions and financial trade bigger than um, the trade of actually tangible goods and services. So volumes have increased tremendously. And the final aspect is that we actually witness um, financial innovation. Right? 88% of international financial transactions are transactions that take place in terms of derivatives. Right? So they're new, um, not very well regulated financial products which account for the largest share of international financial transactions. Um, all these transactions take place against the particular regulatory background, right? there's no such thing as full-blown um, economic financial governance, but there's a loose architecture of both international and domestic institutions 
that take care of regulating international financial markets. There are important domestic institutions, for example, the Security and Exchange Commission um, in the United States, domestic central banks, but there are also important international institutions. The IMF is one example, um, the G20, the Bank for International Settlements. Um, and jointly, these institutions govern international finance. They aim um, at securing the stability of the international financial system. So actors on various different levels, domestic actors, international actors, that govern what's currently happening on international financial markets. So this, in a nutshell, is what I should have in mind when I talk about the international financial system. I mean, when I argue that the international financial system gives rise to a particular moral problem, that the international financial system stands in need of justification. A simple argument with a level of theory in defense of having something like an international financial system, having financial markets, um, and then the practice of international finance as it currently exists. Now, the question that arises is, um, what do we make of the international financial system, morally speaking? Right? What are its normatively salient or significant features? And does the international financial system as it exists give rise to a moral problem? Does it stand in need of justification? And I believe that the answer to that question is a definite, is a definite yes. So the international financial system stands in need of justification. Um, and I'll make an argument in support of that claim. The argument starts off from observing that the international financial system, as I've just described it, possesses four normatively significant or salient features. Right? There are four features that matter when it comes to morally assessing the international financial system, or four features that explain why the international financial system gives rise to a particular moral problem. The first normatively significant feature is found in the fact that the international financial system, financial markets, profoundly affect the interests of those who participate um, in international financial markets. That effect could be a positive effect, it could be a negative effect. Right? If you um, find employment, um, if growth is actually taking place as a consequence of there being international financial markets, your interests are positively affected. Um, if you become unemployed as a consequence of the financial crisis, if your home is foreclosed, um, and so on, your interests are adversely affected by the international financial system. But what's happening in finance matters greatly for how well the lives of individuals go. Right? Their interests um, are fundamentally, profoundly affected by the international financial system. The second important characteristic is that the international financial system is actually collectively alterable. So if all the participants on the financial, on financial markets in the international financial system um, act together to bring about change, the international financial system can actually be, um, can actually be altered. You may think about very fundamental changes that the international financial system underwent. For example, when it went off the gold standard in the early 1930s, um, when the Bretton Woods institutions, or at least those governing the international financial system, collapsed in the early 1970s, um, this was profound change taking place in the international financial system. But you could also think about more minor changes, right? Coming up with a different reserve currency, um, international reserve currency, or changing the reserve requirements um, for banks. These are minor changes um, that may happen in international finance. 
So you may think there are different versions of the international financial system. Right? We're currently facing one version of the international financial system, but we could easily think about alternative versions um, that are altered by those who currently shape, govern, and act on international financial markets. Now, any such version will have different individuals as losers or beneficiaries um, of change. Right? So some might be interested in an undervalued currency because that would have their exports, they would benefit from a financial system or from a version of the financial system that allows for an undervalued currency. Other might be interested in as little regulation as possible because um, they live in a country with a big financial services um, industry. So interests are affected differently and different individuals stand to lose or benefit from different versions of the international financial system. The third important feature of the international financial system is, I think, that it directs the action of those who participate in international funds um, in a useful way. So on the one hand side, it gives individuals incentives to behave in certain ways. But if the interest rate is high, you have an incentive to save. Um, if the IMF is borrowing at a good rate as a country, maybe you have an incentive to run um, the public deficit. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, there are sanctions. Right? Um, if you don't repay your debt, sanctions are attached to that. So the international financial system directs the agents of participants both for incentives and sanctions. And maybe even more importantly, I think it defines the option space of actors on international financial markets in an important way. Right? So depending on how exactly the international financial system is designed, there are certain things that actors can or cannot do. Under the gold standard, for example, central banks couldn't pursue an independent monetary policy. Right? They just had to ensure that the amount of money in circulation actually doesn't exceed the amount of gold that is in the bank. So no independent monetary policy. It was a certain option of acting in particular ways that became available only after the international financial system went off gold. So the international financial system directs the action of its participants by giving incentives, sanctions, and by defining the option space of what one can actually do. And the fourth important feature is that from the point of view of individual participants, um, you're actually a system taker. But right? no one on his or her own can individually alter the setup of the international financial system. You're a system taker. From the individual's point of view, you have to accept the system as it is. And actually, membership is involuntary. But right? it's very hard to leave or exit the international financial system. Um, one reason, for example, would be very costly to leave and exit the international financial system. Right? So it's not really an option, maybe. So I think these are the four normatively salient features that characterize the international financial system um, that matter when it comes to morally assessing the international financial system. Why? Because I believe that any institution or practice which possesses these four different features will have to be justifiable to each of its participants. Right, so I think there is a stricter justificatory requirement that applies if the institution or practice to which you're interacting possesses these four different features. It's not enough, in particular, to point out, for example, that having something like an international financial system um, is an aggregate better because the benefits somehow outweigh the burdens of having an international financial system. But I don't think that's good enough as a justification. But you have to justify the international financial system by offering a justification to each and every one participant separately or individually. 
Right? So it's a strict justificator requirement, which I think arises in virtue of these four different features. Now you may ask yourself, why should that be the case? Right? Why is it these four different features that trigger a stricter justificatory requirement which applies to the international financial system? Now I think there are at least two different reasons for buying my claim that a practice with these four features will have to be justifiable to each of its participants. So first I think that claim is plausible because it helps us make sense of the fact that our morality is actually layered. Right? So it seems, many people believe, that our moral obligations towards core citizens, for example, are very different from the moral obligations we have towards foreigners. Um, maybe they are more egalitarian, maybe they are in some sense stricter. They are some different in shape, content, and, and so on. Um, <coughs> and my claim would actually help to explain why that is the case. Right? If we interact with others through institutions um, that possess these features, um, by the way, I think the state, the institutions of a domestic state, or domestic basic structure, are also characterized by these four different features. Right? My claim can help explain why obligations within these institutions are different from the obligations beyond these institutions. And I think that makes my claim um, plausible. The second argument in support of the claim is, well, there's actually good independent justification for it, right? because the claim is grounded in respect for agency. Right? So if you're directing the <coughs> actions of somebody else, as the international financial system does, it would be um, disrespectful um, if you can't offer good reason for why you're directing the action of that other in that particular way. But you would be using that other person, that individual, merely as a means, maybe, if you get that person to do a particular thing, to behave in certain ways, without being able to offer good justification to that individual. Right? So as a matter of respect, um, you owe them some sort of justification which explains why directing their action in a way that profoundly affects their interests is actually justified. So if you find these two lines of argument Convincing, it is the case that the international financial system, because of these four different features which characterize it, has to be justifiable to each of its participants. That establishes the need for justification. Right? The international financial system is the type of institution, um, the type of practice, the type of interaction that stands in need of justification. Now the question is, what does that justification look like? And I think there are usually two candidates for justifying an institution that possesses these four different features. Right? The first candidate is consent. Right? An institution might be justified if those who inhabit the institution interact with each other through the institution actually consent um, to doing so. So I think that's a non-starter in the context of international finance. Right? Because there is no option to leave it would be very costly to leave. Individuals usually don't consent um, to being members of a state which then acts on international financial markets and so on. So I think consent doesn't work. One would have to look for a different type of justification. And that would be justification by appealing to the interests that are affected. Right? You may justify the international financial system in terms of how it affects the interest of those who cooperate with each other um, on international financial markets. Um, but it turns out that this justification in terms of interests is actually difficult or takes a particular form in the context of international finance. 
Right? So justifying the international financial system to one individual would work um, in the following way. What you could say, well, this version of the international financial system is justifiable to you because it maximally advances your interests. Right? That would be a good justification. Right? It's the best we can do for you. We maximally advance your interests by that version of the international financial system. But unfortunately, there's conflict of interests. Right? Different groups of individuals stand to lose a benefit from different versions of the international financial system. So any version of the international financial system can maximally advance the interests of everyone. Right, so the justification in terms of interests has to work slightly differently. Right? I think it has to be justification in terms of interests. We advance your interests, subject to the condition that the system be justifiable to all. Right? Because different individuals are affected in different ways. There's conflict of interest. What does it mean to justify the international financial system in terms of its impact on individual interests, subject to the condition that it be justifiable to all? Um, now, I believe that the solution is that the international financial system is successfully justified by appealing to individual interests. If it turns out to be most acceptable to those, it is least acceptable to. Right? How do we make sense of that idea, something being most acceptable to those, it is least acceptable to? I think the idea of the complaint comes in handy at this point. Right? So, the system, the international financial system, is justifiable to all in the sense that it's most acceptable to those it is least acceptable to if the biggest complaint that anyone can raise against a particular version of the international financial system is as small as possible. Right, so imagine a simple case where we have two individuals, um, Brian, Brian and me, and we have to choose between financial system A and financial system B. If we choose financial system A, I may have a complaint because I would be better off under financial system B. If we choose financial system B, Brian may have a complaint because he would be better off under financial system A. Now I think the right thing to do in such a situation is to look at these different complaints, figure out what the magnitude and the weight of the respective complaint is, and go for that version of the international financial system um, which give gives rise to the smallest possible complaint. Right, so if Brian's complaint against choosing A is bigger than my complaint against choosing B, we go for the version that would benefit that would benefit Brian because otherwise he would have the greater, the greater complaint. Um, if you think about it in the context of finance, assume a simpler case to maybe illustrate what I have in mind. Imagine there's the debtor and the creditor, and the debtor owes the creditor, say, £100, which have to be paid back in a year's time. Now there is the policymaker, say, a central bank, and the central bank is contemplating what policy to pursue. Right? They could pursue a policy of financial stability, or they could pursue a policy which leads to inflation by setting the interest rate, for example. Now, the question is, who would have a bigger complaint against pursuing which option? Right? The creditor would have a complaint against inflation because the value of the money he receives in one year time would be lower than the value of the money he'd receive in one year's time under conditions of price stability. The debtor, on the other hand, would have a complaint against 
price stability because the debtor would be better off um, under the policy of inflation because you'd have to pay less money back in real terms in a year's, year's time. Right? So what is it that the central bank ought to do, go for inflation or go for price stability? I think a plausible way of going about it is to compare the complaints that the debtor or the creditor would have respectively against one or the other policy. Right? So I haven't answered the question which way to go, it's just outlining the model for how to think about these questions. And one obvious question is, of course, well, how exactly do we figure out which complaint is bigger than an alternative complaint? Right? How do we determine the magnitude, the weight, the size of a particular complaint? And I think there are at least a number of factors that matter for figuring out what the respective complaint size is. So I think, um, all else being equal, somebody has a greater complaint than somebody else if he's already worse off in absolute terms. Right? So the complaints of those who are worse off in terms of well-being, for example, those complaints are greater in size or weigh more heavily. You may also think that the net effect that, for example, the international financial system has on participants matters. Right? Maybe you have a greater complaint if you're harmed or adversely affected compared to some baseline by a version of the international financial system. That complaint is greater than the complaint you'd have if you're benefiting, you're positively affected by the international financial system to begin with. Right? Probably we also, it's probably also the case that the size of the loss matters. Right? If you compare two different versions and try to figure out who has the bigger complaint, how much you would be losing by choosing one version over the other version also matters for the complaint size. So I think that's the structure that the justification of the international financial system, so that it's justifiable to each and every participant, that's the structure that the justification will have to take. I've been talking about interests, but I haven't answered the question yet what the relevant interests in the context of international finance actually are. Right? What's the currency of the justification that we're looking for? And I think one should be looking at those interests that are most profoundly affected by international finance, and which at the same time the participants take themselves to be advancing through participating in the international financial system. And I think there are three relevant interests, three interests that matter as the currency of justifying the international financial system. The first interest is individual economic well-being. The second interest is what I call effective democratic sovereignty. And the third interest is uh, the ability of domestic institutions to deliver social justice at home. And I say a little bit more about each of these. So I think economic, individual economic well-being is relatively straightforward. Right? Um, it's income and growth that affects you um, as an individual. It could be growth that affects um, individuals who um, cooperate on the level um, of a state. And clearly, individuals, households, firms, organized in governments, they go to financial markets to advance their economic well-being. Right? So that's an important currency, an important interest. But I think effective democratic sovereignty is similarly important. What do I mean by effective democratic sovereignty? Roughly speaking, the ability of a group of individuals to collectively run their affairs in a democratic way. Right? To make decisions of how you want to live together, to enact these conditions, uh, these decisions over time um, under potentially adverse circumstances. Decisions about what public goods to provide, at what level, um, how to finance the public good provisions, 
and so on, and importantly, to make these decisions democratically. That's effective democratic sovereignty. And I think international finance has an impact on effective democratic sovereignty. Um, and it could have a positive impact on effective democratic sovereignty, right? If people organized in a state democratically decide at a certain point in time um, to spend less than they want to raise in tax revenue, they have to go to international financial markets, right? To maintain the provision of public goods during an economic recession, for example, they have to go to international financial markets. So I think international financial markets um, has a direct effect or a direct link to what I call effective democratic sovereignty. The final interest that matters is the ability of domestic institutions to deliver social justice. Right? Um, take a stand that draws the idea of social justice, the difference principle. I think the international financial system is important for ensuring that the worst of domestically are as well off as they could be. Right? So you need um, the international financial system, for example, to engage in the kind of macroeconomic management which you need during a recession to secure employment, um, to get the economy up and running again. Um, I think you need access to the international financial system. So the ability of the state to deliver social justice at home depends um, on international finance. Now, if this is the right account of the interests that are affected by the practice of international finance, and the international financial system has to be justifiable to each in the sense that complaints have to be maximized, my claims about the structure of justification are correct, then conclusion at the bottom of the page to be justifiable, the international financial system will have to minimize the greatest individual complaint in terms of its impact on economic well-being, democratic sovereignty, and the ability of state institutions to deliver social justice. Now, to give you an idea of the argument that is going to follow shortly, I don't believe that the current version of the international financial system meets that justificatory requirement. Arguments that could potentially justify the international financial system by appealing to the impact that the international financial system has on individual economic well-being, effective democratic sovereignty, the ability to deliver social justice at home, these arguments don't succeed. But there is an alternative version of the international financial system against which the greatest individual complaint would be smaller, and I'll argue that such a version would be a version of the international financial system that actually features an international financial transaction tax. That's a slightly elaborate argument. This is the framework which I propose for thinking about questions of justice in the context of international finance. International finance possesses a number of normatively significant features. It gives rise to a particular problem of justification. The justification would have to take place by appealing to these three different interests. <coughs> now, the next step of the argument is to establish the idea that the current version of the international financial system actually gives rise to quite significant complaints to the extent that it fails at the relevant bar of justification. Now, here's why I think it fails. I think it fails in all three respects. The first respect is the respect of individual economic well-being. Right? And I think individuals can raise quite significant complaints about how the international financial system in its current version affects their individual economic well-being. If you look at the domestic context and 
the implications or consequences of the financial crisis in the domestic context. I think people can raise complaints about how their individual economic well-being is affected if they are unemployed, for example, right? if growth is lower than it could have been, if their homes are foreclosed, and so right? So it seems to be a very strong ground for raising complaints against the current version of the international financial system. But I think globally, similar arguments can be made. Right? So arguably, as a consequence of the financial crisis, remittance payments have dropped significantly. Right? Payments that those who work in developing countries send home um, to their families in the developing world, these payments have gone down dramatically, um, fueled poverty in the developing world, arguably as a consequence of the financial crisis in the developing world. I think you can also raise complaints against the impact on individual economic well-being, um, not only when it comes to crises, but also when it comes to the volatility of the current international financial system. Right, so there's a phenomenon called role reversal in international finance. What's happening is that actually there are net financial flows from the developing world to the developed world, right? The other way around than it should be, and that's because the central banks of developing countries um, have to sit on large amounts of net foreign assets or foreign currencies to self-insure them, them, to insure themselves <coughs> against fluctuations taking place on international, for example, currency markets. Right? And they have to pay interest, for example, um, for sitting sitting on dollars. And there's actually a net flow of capital from the developing world to the developed world as a consequence of the volatility of the international financial system and the need for self-insurance. And finally, in terms of individual economic well-being, you can argue that in the current international financial system, the link between the financial sector and the real economy is actually broken. Right? The original justification of the international financial system would be, well, it makes sure that financial resources within an economy are put to their most effective use. Um, they're actually funding what's happening in the real economy. That doesn't seem to be the case, right? because a large share of what's happening in international financial systems, many of the financial resources are actually put to speculative rather than productive uses. Right? Hardly any money um, goes into IPOs and so on, um, but most of the flows happen in the context of trading with derivatives. So adverse effect on individual economic well-being, and note that those raising these complaints are those probably worst off, right, both domestically um, and, and globally. Now I think the international financial system in its current form also has an adverse impact um, on effective democratic sovereignty. Right? It undermines the state's ability or the collective ability of individuals to be in control of their own affairs. And it does so in two different ways, right? I think effective democratic sovereignty depends on two things, right? Revenues, as a state, you have to be able to raise revenues through taxation um, to be an effective democratic sovereign. Uh, but it also depends on expenditure, right? You have to be in a position where you can spend money as you see fit. And I think both these abilities or capacities of state institutions are threatened or maybe even undermined by the current international financial system. So I think tax revenues are going down. It's becoming more and more difficult to actually raise taxes, for example, because of capital mobility. Right? Capital is just moving abroad, uh, for example, if corporate taxes are increased in a particular location. You can actually see that mobile factors of production are taxed less and less, whereas labor is taxed more and more. That's the problem of tax competition, right? Different countries have engaged in a 
to the bottom to attract um, foreign, foreign capital, the problem of tax savings, and so on. So there's a serious revenue problem um, for states arising as a consequence um, of the international financial system having the form that it currently has, threatening effective democratic sovereignty. But I think also the ability to spend as you see fit is undermined or threatened, right? Um, they're ballooning public debts, um, bailouts, turning into a sovereign debt crisis, right? So the ability of states to spend money on the provision of public goods, um, education, and so on, um, as is democratically decided, that ability is actually undermined. So there are problems on both the expenditure and the revenue side um, undermining effective democratic sovereignty. Finally, I think there are complaints to be raised against the impact that the international financial system has on the state's ability to deliver social justice at home. Um, just two things I want to briefly talk about. But one thing is that under conditions of perfect capital mobility, which characterize the international financial system as it currently exists, certain tools of macroeconomic management essential for making sure that the worst of as well off as possible, these tools become ineffective. Right? If you have a fixed exchange rate regime, for example, you can't rely on um, an expansionary monetary policy um, to get the economy up and going during an economic crisis because you have to use your monetary policy um, to defend your fixed exchange rate. Right? If you have a floating exchange rate, you can't really use um, fiscal expand expansion um, during a recession because um, the appreciation of the, of the exchange rate um, will undo the effect that the fiscal expansion has. So standard tools of macroeconomic management become ineffective um, under conditions of the current international financial system. And finally, I think this is a phenomenon um, that has received wide attention, right? The international financial system and the crisis is in a very direct way upsetting um, principles of distributive justice or principles of fairness in the domestic context, for example, the phenomenon of private gains and public losses. Right? The costs, the burdens, and benefits um, of assuming economic risks, they are distributed unfairly or unjustly within society, and the phenomenon of too big to fail, right? you benefit from the risk-taking um, if the bad outcome doesn't actually materialize, and if the bad outcome materializes, um, you're bailed out because you're too big um, so I think this is a very direct way in which the international financial system upsets standards of distributive justice by distributing the costs of risk-taking um, unfairly. So I think in all three respects that matter in the context of international finance, there are significant complaints to be raised against the current version of the international financial system. But luckily, I think, the international financial transaction tax would actually help to fix the international financial system. Right? A version of the international financial system that features an international financial transaction tax leads to smaller complaints. Here's the proposal of the international financial transaction tax. Right? So it's first been talked about by Keynes in 36 and then picked up by Tobin in the 1970s. They've been developed in a particular historical context to deal with a particular um, Phenomenon, but I think one can generalize the idea. Right? So the idea of an international financial transaction tax is that you levy a tax of a particular rate, usually a very small tax, right? Um, 0.01% up to 0.1% maybe, a very small tax on transactions 
of a particular asset subject to particular conditions. Right? So the number of variables you have to fill in. You have to figure out what the tax rate you have in mind is. You have to figure out what exactly the asset is, transactions of which are markets you want to tax. But it could be common stock, could be foreign currency, could be merely derivatives. You can figure out what your preferred asset class is. And you may introduce additional conditions. Right? You may say, oh, the tax only has to be paid if the asset is resold within a certain time frame or time period. Right? So the number of variables you can play with. But regardless of how you spell out the tax proposal, I think there's always a dual rationale. Right? On the one hand side, the tax will have a revenue effect, a significant revenue effect. Right? Um, even a very small tax will generate billions, hundreds of billions um, per year if levied on a global level. That's a revenue effect. On the other hand side, the tax also has an incentive effect. Right? It makes a certain type of economic behavior um, less attractive. In particular, it should make um, buying assets for speculative purposes um, with the intent of resetting the asset in a short period of time, exploiting small price differentials and so on, makes that sort of behavior um, less less attractive, because the money you could make is essentially taxed away. Now, why is an international financial transaction tax promising? I think it's promising because it will reduce the complaints that individuals can have against the international financial system in all three different respects. So I think it makes everyone better off in terms of individual economic well-being because an international financial transaction tax has the promise of prevent, preventing the asset bubbles that have fueled the current um, economic crisis. It has the promise of curbing um, volatility, for example, through putting a lid on overshooting, herd behavior, and, and so on, the phenomena that come with exploiting small price differentials in a short, in a short time frame. Right? So they get rid of all these complaints that individuals can raise against the international financial system in terms of its impact on individual economic well-being. I think it will also have the effect of re-channeling financial resources away from speculative use to productive use. Right? If it becomes less attractive financially um, to engage in derivative trading, maybe more money goes into the funding um, of IPOs, for example. And the link between the real economy and the financial side of the economy that could, in principle, justify having the financial sector in the first place, but that link is reinstantiated. Well, what's the effect on effective democratic sovereignty? Again, I think um, the tax would have a positive effect on effective democratic sovereignty. Um, if it works well, if it's well targeted, it may make bailouts obsolete because the financial system will just be a more stable financial system with an international financial transaction tax. Right? So it takes care of the expenditure problem. You can again use public money to spend it on the purposes that you want to spend it on. Um, through the revenue effect, um, it will increase the ability of states to actually spend money on the provision of public goods um, because you can now tax on a global level, you can undo the adverse effects um, on the generation of tax revenue. And finally, it will also have a positive effect or at least reduce the size of the complaint that individuals can raise against the international financial system when it comes to the ability of the state to deliver social justice. So one thing is that an international financial transaction tax will work a little bit like the capital control, which makes it possible for you to rely on the tools of macroeconomic management again. But if you have an international financial transaction tax, you can, for example, have 
the domestic interest rate that is different from the world interest rate. So assume a simple case where you charge the transaction tax of 0.5% uh, on a currency uh, transaction, say, right? That gives you the policy space for having um, an interest rate differential of up to a percent, right? Because if you have to pay 0.5% of the value of the transaction once you're buying the foreign currency, and then again when you're selling it, um, you won't move into a country just to exploit, say, a higher interest rate in that particular country. Right? So it creates the policy space that you maybe need to engage in effective macroeconomic management. And finally, it's a way of internalizing the cost of the financial crisis and sharing the cost of the financial crisis um, maybe in a fairer, in a fairer way, um, namely between those who assume the risks, the bankers, and the rest. So I think the promise of the international financial transaction tax is that it actually delivers a version of the international financial system that lives up to the justificatory requirement that applies to the international financial system. If you just compare two versions of the international financial system, the current version and a version with an international financial transaction tax, the biggest complaint that anyone could raise against a version with an international financial transaction tax will be smaller than the biggest complaint that individuals can raise against the current version. That's, in a nutshell, the positive argument. Now, there are a number of alternatives to an international financial transaction tax, alternative policy proposals. i just talk about them very briefly. Some people argue that instead of having an international financial transaction tax, we should go all the way and have global economic governance. Right? Deeper integration, genuine global economic governance, maybe a global central bank, and so on. Now, I think this option is both undesirable and unfeasible, right? It's easy to say why it's unfeasible. I mean, if you look how slowly trade negotiations are moving and so on, having full-blown global economic governance is a far shot, right? Um, but I think it's also undesirable, right? For example, for reasons having to do with democratic <coughs> accountability. If you have global institutions of economic governance, many important decisions are taken out of the domain of domestic democratic decision-making. And I take it that if you believe in democracy and the value of democracy, that's a bad thing. So deep integration, genuine global economic governance, both undesirable and unfeasible. But what about a weaker proposal? Why right? just enhanced orthodox regulation? Don't introduce something like an international financial transaction tax, but go for high reserve requirements um, for keeping investment banking separate from retail banking, for, get for getting um, the shadow banking sector under, under tighter regulation, and so on. Right? Why not just go for enhanced orthodox regulation, as it is, for example, done in the, in the States? Well, I think enhanced orthodox regulation will be important. It will make an important difference. But I think enhanced orthodox regulation doesn't get to the heart of the problem, which is perfect capital mobility. Right? If you look at the complaints and why the complaints arose, many of them have to do with perfect, almost perfect, capital mobility and enhanced orthodox regulation doesn't get to the heart of that problem. Third alternative, no global economic governance, maybe enhanced orthodox regulation, but no tax levied on a global level. Instead, why not count on individual countries to levy the tax if they think it's a good idea? Right? We don't need a uniform solution, but countries who need, for example, capital controls should be able to introduce them unilaterally. Uh, why not go for that option? I think there are three reasons that speak against that option. One is that unilaterally imposing capital controls 
is way more costly than universally introducing capital controls. But if one country does so um, on its own, they'll be adversely affected. There'll be capital flight and so on. Excessive costs, it's unlikely to happen. Right? But not having hot money at one place, that's the second reason, you just redirect the money, the problem will become worse at other places. Right? So you're not solving the problem by the unilateral introduction of capital controls in one particular place. I think you're merely redirecting the problem to other locations. And then finally, if you think about the countries that are most adversely affected, for example, by the phenomenon of role reversal and the need for self-insurance, do you think that these countries have the institutions you'd have to have in order to implement, um, administer such a tax proposal? Again, the answer is that's unlikely. Right? So a number of reasons that speak against the introduction of unilateral capital controls. The International Financial Transaction Tax, of course, has many... Um, many critics, right? many objections are raised against the proposal. Um, I just talk about two to finish off my talk. I'm looking forward to hearing more of these objections um, during the question and answer. But actually I'm not. I would be happy with you, Greg. <laughs> um, feel free to raise them anyways. So one objection is um, drawing on empirical evidence and pointing to a conceptual tension in my argument. right? The empirical evidence is that actually, if you look at historical examples of something like a transaction tax, the revenue that has been generated has been much lower than was anticipated. Um, the conceptual tension is, well look, you can't really be successful in both the respects you envisage. Right? You can't raise enormous revenues and get rid of the behavior that you want to prevent. Right? Because if you succeed in the one, you'll be unsuccessful in the other. Right? If you can generate revenue, that means the type of behavior you want to prevent is still taking place. If you're successful in preventing the type of speculative behavior that you want to prevent, there won't be any revenues. Um, I think that's a good objection. Here's my response. I'd say, well, either there's a sweet spot between the two aims, right, where you prevent just the type of behavior, or you prevent the behavior just to the extent to which you want to prevent it, and still raise significant revenues. That's the first response. The second response is, well, there's also tension in the objection, right? The more successful, um, the objection says, the more successful you are in the one respect, the less successful um, you are in the other. Well, but that also works in my favor, right? Because the mechanisms I spelled out by which the tax works relied on both the revenue effect and the incentive effect, right? So if you're saying um, you're successful in the revenue effect and as a consequence unsuccessful in the action preventing behavior respect, well, at least there's one way in which the tax works, right? It's generating, it's generating revenues. Um, or the other way around, if you don't raise any revenues, at least you've prevented the type of behavior which you identified as, as harmful. Well, in both mechanisms, the revenue effect and the incentive effect um, were essential to explaining why a version with an international financial transaction tax would give rise to only smaller complaints. Final objection has to do with feasibility, why critics say, if the tax is introduced on less than a global level, it actually won't work because financial service industry will just leave, relocate, move to a location where the tax actually isn't levied, um, and instituting it on a global level is actually feasible, but we can't even agree on it in the context of the European Union because the UK is against it. Now, again, my response is twofold, right? I think the tax would work even if levied on a less than global level because critics often forget about the costs associated with relocation. Right? There are many benefits associated with doing business, um, say, in the UK. A certain legal infrastructure, 
um, certain public infrastructure, which tonight might not be working, but still there are costs associated with relocating and moving to another location where the tax potentially isn't levied. And finally, even though some will be losing out as a consequence of the tax, whereas the UK, I guess, won't be in that beneficiary in the first instance, um, the revenues of the tax could be used to compensate <coughs> those who lose out. But if the British argument is we forego many tax revenues which we currently generate um, through financial activity in London, I guess you can be compensated for the foregone tax revenues um, with the revenues generated from levying international financial transaction tax. So I think the main alternative proposals don't really work, or they have to be supplemented by international financial transaction tax. I think they're good responses to at least two of the most important objections, which vindicates my original claim, namely that the proposal of an international financial transaction tax um, is an adequate and feasible policy instrument for making the international financial system more just, for bringing the international financial system into line with the normative requirements that apply to it to make sure that the international financial system is actually justifiable um, to all its participants. Thank you. All right, we have about half an hour for questions. Um, please raise your hand and I'll try to get a count on you first. All right, we'll start at the back. Um, there's a good body of empirical evidence that shows there is cost associated with the financial transaction tax beyond it. So it comes in the form of lower liquidity in markets, uh, reduced prices for securities, um, which hurt not only the people holding them, but also firms that need access to capital in the future. So given that those costs are spread out across the whole system and affect not only people that don't have to be at large banks, but also consumers, how do we know that? I guess. How do we know that all the positive things you mentioned are actually going to happen? And even if they do, how do you know that those benefits will outweigh the costs that we've seen from this in the Good question. So I think there is empirical uncertainty about some of the effects that you mentioned. Right? So some think reduced liquidity um, comes at a cost. Others think there's actually excess liquidity, and it's a good idea to get rid of some of this liquidity. Right? But as you mentioned, there are other effects where the costs are more definite and, and clear. Right? For example, um, reduced stock price, it becomes more expensive for companies to fund their activities and, and so on. But these are the things that, that you mentioned. And I think um, it would be a mistake to deny that these costs exist. Right? These costs have to be taken um, into account, but I think they have to be taken into account in a particular way. Right? Because, I mean, every policy has costs. Right? Somebody will be adversely, adversely affected. I think the tricky question is to figure out well, how exactly should these costs matter? Right? How important are they? Maybe it's worth incurring these costs. Right? And I think we currently lack a framework for assessing whether certain costs are worth incurring um, or whether costs actually speak in a definite way against a particular <coughs> policy proposal. And in the context of finance, it's not so clear, I think, how different costs should be, should be weighed. Right? And this is why I propose the framework, but I think relying on that framework and examining what the costs are for participants in the international financial system in terms of economic well-being, effective democratic sovereignty, the ability of their institutions to deliver social justice at home, for assessing the costs in terms of how these interests are affected, and then figuring out um, who would have the greater complaint and so on, 
you can actually make sure that the costs are incorporated in the right in the right way. But and I, I agree that this will be a horribly complex exercise. Right? Not only do you have to answer many empirical questions, questions of macroeconomic theory, I take it, um, I take it as well. You probably have to experiment, figure out how things how things work, and then also figure out how these costs matter for the respective interests that I've that I've mentioned. I, I don't think it would be easy, I'm not even confident that it, it can be done um, uh, all, all, all the way, um, but I don't think it's, it's a definite objection to the, to the proposal and for taking the costs into account in the way, in the way I suggest. But I, I agree one shouldn't, one shouldn't just ignore these costs, but make sure that they incorporate it in the right way. All the way on the right. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, there's two things that I'm not sure I get it. Mm -hmm. The first thing is the volatility. You're saying that when we introduce this kind of tax, the volatility of market will decrease, and this provides safety environment for investor. But in my understanding, when we want to introduce certain tax, usually the participants will get away from the market, and less people participate in the market, and that there will be less trade. Therefore, the volatility actually increases because the bid offer spread increase, and then it provides uncertainty to the market and the price discovery-like process. Therefore, I'm not certain that um, if we introduce this kind of tax, the volatility actually will decline. I think it will increase instead. Mm -hmm. And you talk about bailout. Mm -hmm. And I think about, uh, for example, like Greece government, there's a lot of bailout event in 2010. Basically, it's not a matter of the financial instrument, but actually about the mismanagement of government financials or the government deficits. So it seems to me that uh, and also there's a lot of other instruments besides of CDS, there's options, swaps, uh, bonds, or a lot of financial instruments. If, uh, if all of us need to subsidize uh, by paying tax to manage this kind of risk to certain financial innovations, I think it's unfair to a lot of investors because they just want to do normal things like corporations, they want to do hedging or other things, they want to do investment in bonds. There's nothing about the innovations or CDS or CDO or like obligations, this kind of fancy thing. So I just think that introducing IFTT is unfair to this kind of investor because they are like not actively investing in certain risky things. So there are many things in the question. Let's see whether I, I can get them, um, <laughs> get them straight. So the first part of the question was about the volatility and that actually volatility might go up as a consequence of having having the tax. Right? So I think um, there are arguments on both both sides. Right? Some people argue volatility will go up, others argue that volatility will go down. It's hard to figure out who exactly who exactly is right. Um, so I think the argument behind the idea that volatility will go down is that um, well, markets become volatile, for example, as a consequence um, of hot money, um, of too much liquidity maybe chasing um, or exploiting very small price differentials, right? You get hurt behavior, you get overshooting, and then you introduce volatility, right? By making these transactions less attractive through introducing a tax, the volatility of markets will, will go down, right? I see there are counter-arguments. Um, you could say volatility goes up um, as a consequence of the mechanisms that you mentioned, people will move away um, from the market and so on. But I guess one response to that would be to say, well, if if the tax actually is levied on a global level, it's hard to move. It's hard to move away. Right? There isn't really 
there isn't really an alternative, um, and maybe it's reducing exactly the type of behavior that you want to be that you want to be preventing. Right? But I'm um, I'm happy to stand to be corrected on these on these accounts. I'm not I'm not an economist. I'm a um, I'm a philosopher. So I guess I'd be I'd be happy to say, for example, that maybe one should discount volatility arguments in light of this empirical disagreement. Right? So I think methodologically the difficulty is if you're trying to make a normative argument, how do you deal with empirical disagreement? Right? Some economists say volatility will go up. Other economists say volatility will go down. Right? Um, as a philosopher, how to judge which economist is, is right. right? Um, uh, so I guess maybe arguments having to do with volatility should be, should be discounted unless there's more evidence to the effect that one side is right and the other side is, is wrong. Um, your second question... Um, or maybe maybe high public debt levels aren't a consequence of bailouts, but of bad um, financial management on the side uh, of of states, right? Um, so I, I, I agree that there is also a normative imperative or requirement um, that states get their finances in order. Right? But I think in this case, empirically, there is um, convincing evidence that actually sovereign debt levels have gone up as a consequence. Um, of the crisis, right? I think if, if you look at if you look at the numbers, it's as a consequence of the crisis, and at the state stepping in, that the public debt levels have gone um, have gone up. In I mean, most obviously in, in Greece, but in also in the other countries adversely affected, um, particularly in the European. In the European. Uh, here in the front, followed by all the way in the back, followed by the two gentlemen in the middle. Yeah. Hi. Um, you say that tax could help to avoid the speculation, right? Uh, the things that, for example, in Spain, we have this major bubble in housing market where the transaction costs are very, very high already. So why do you think it would work in finance and it didn't work, for example, in housing? Plus, do you think it's current to defend attacks to avoid the speculation? At the same time, uh, some people, I'm not thinking you, but some people that do, uh, they defend fractional reserve for monopoly of central banks. <laughs> So the final point, I think, um, I'm, I'm not against in uh, I'm not against enhanced orthodox regulation. Right? So if, if you think that's a way forward, for example, changing changing reserve requirements for banks and so on, right? I'm, I'm happy to take that. I'm happy to take that on board. Um, I don't know about the transaction costs and, and the Spanish no, the Spanish housing housing uh, or the transaction costs are high. The speculation is going to be there. So, to me, it seems that this tax is just an excuse to get more revenues so the government can spend more. It, well, I mean, that's what's happening in Spain or in France. Yeah. Instead, the actual report that probably your, your ethical point is very strong, but in the end, the government it works the way it works. So, I guess whether or not the tax is effective in preventing speculation, right? I, I, I guess, would depend on the tax level that you choose, right? If if you come up with a very high tax level, that will make speculation um, unattractive, I guess. Right? But too high a tax level would have other adverse effects which maybe you don't want. Right? So if you go for a very low tax level, you probably won't prevent speculation or things considered. You'll just reduce it um, in the margin, in the margin, I guess. Right? So maybe the problem can be solved by figuring out what exactly the right tax rate is. Um, what the right tax rate should be, right? But 
Um, so I think that's one type of speculation that definitely becomes less attractive, namely speculation that exploits very small price differentials. Um, because exploiting very small price differentials would become unattractive even with a very small, even with a very small tax rate. Right? I, I, I don't want to say that something like an international financial transaction tax would definitely have prevented the Spanish, um, the Spanish housing bubble. But I guess that would be that would be too strong. I'll go in back, please. Thank you very much for your approach. I've been working around the telling tax for the last five years. I just would like to ask you, um, uh, last year we did a study that uh, said that there are already 30 financial transactions all over the world, and there's even the continued link at Settlement Bank with also implementing an uh, atomic tax. Um, there are many, uh, the vast majority of financial organizations, when you are trading with option forward one, they are uh, taxing you with a, an internal uh, financial transaction tax. So my question is, which is your opinion why there's so many reluctance, so many opposition, especially from here, from London? I'm not talking from an economical point of view, because for me it doesn't make sense. There are so many already implemented. But what is the, um, the political argument that you could think about these people against it? And the second question, when you talk about an international financial transaction tax, remember like seven years ago, we were talking about the currency transaction tax, <coughs> taking into account it's five billion turnover daily, uh, five trillion, sorry, sorry. So are you thinking in a comprehensive financial transaction tax or uh, currency forms, derivatives? So to the first question, I mean, what explains the reluctance of policymakers to actually embrace the proposal of an international financial transaction tax? Right? I think it's talking about the tax proposal in the context of the European Union. The answer, I guess, is is quite obvious. Right? I mean, why is it the UK that is resisting um, the tax, the tax proposal? Because they are the ones who stand to lose most from the proposal. Right? I, I, I take it that's the fear right? that the um, financial services industry in London will be will be adversely affected and of course as a government you are sensitive to these sorts to these sorts of concerns. Right? Um, I don't know whether that's the official justification or the official argument you would get if you ask why are you against why are you against the tax. So, but I, I think that's that's the bottom line which explains the the resistance. Right now the question is um, how do you break up that resistance if you think a tax would be would be a good idea. Right? Do you think that um, Chancellor would be swayed by, by this type of argument? Right? Maybe, maybe not. Right? Um, so maybe what you need is some sort of credible account that they won't be losers, all things considered, but that they could be compensated through the tax revenue that such a tax would raise if levied in the context of the European Union. Right? So I think that's the type of convincing that would maybe um, that would maybe work and be and be more successful. Now, do I envisage a comprehensive tax, or do I envisage a tax on um, a particular um, asset class, and and so on? I, I'm not sure is the, the honest answer. Right? So I, was, I think I, I try to just consider the, the proposal um, in the abstract, and it will have different effects depending on how exactly the proposal is spelled out, what type of asset class you're taxing, what would write, and so on. And maybe the justification you come up with is slightly different in each particular case. But it may be also your judgment on whether it's all things considered a good idea for go to, to go for such a tax 
is, is a good idea. And so I think more thinking through the various precise proposals and the respective arguments would be, um, would be required, which I think involves both normative work and, and empirical work, figuring out what the effect on different types of financial markets would be and so on. Um, so, uh, so I should preface my remarks by saying that I, I, I came to the lecture as a thinking that financial transaction tax was a really bad idea, and I'm afraid you haven't changed my mind about that. Um, but I, I kind of got two points. One is a very practical point, which kind of deals with some of the things you were saying at the end, your anticipated beneficial effects, which I'm very sceptical of. But then I want to go back to some of the things you were saying at the start about the financial system. So, so just on the benefits. Um, so in the UK, we've had a financial tra transaction tax for a very long time. Um, so UK equity transactions are taxed using stamp duty um, at a higher rate than, in fact, many people suggest the financial transaction tax should be. And I see no evidence of any of the beneficial effects that are uh, alleged uh, to be attached to the financial transaction tax, the international tax, accruing to the UK by taxing equity transactions in the way that we do. Um, I don't think it's led to you know, better government or better distribution of wealth or more democratic control or less volatility in the equity markets. It's just a tax. And, and the point about it, which uh, worries me, which you didn't talk about at all, is that because financial assets are so clearly identified, um, their ownership is identified, it's very easy for um, agents in the financial system to pass the tax back to the principal, so the, the beneficial owner. So one of the obvious things about the UK financial transaction tax is that it's not paid by the financial institutions who trade or transact or who hold assets in custody. It's paid by the individuals or the institutions that own equities who trade them. And it would be very easy for the financial agents to pass these taxes directly on to the people on whose behalf they're transacting, which means, in effect, the tax is just another tax on consumers, or in this case, savers, um, people who are transacting. So then, then there's a question about why, you know, why we think a, a another tax that's going to be paid by by all of us, not by institutions, but by us, whether it's through our pension funds or our insurance policies, or you know, is a good idea. And that seems to me to be one of the big concerns about it. Um, that, that the reason lots of politicians like it is because it's not visible to the public. They think it's being paid by the banks, actually it's being paid by the citizens. So it's much easier for them to get support for it, although in fact it won't be, it won't be paid by the people they allege it will. And I, I'd like you to address that. But my, my second point, I think... But it's, these were two already, right? <laughs> no, it's, it's, well, it's, it's part of the same point, right? Why, why would you support tax that you're going to pay, right? And one of the reasons that people are sympathetic to it because they've been led to believe that it's not going to affect them, but it's a tax on transactions by institutions without seeing that those institutions can pass the tax very easily through to the beneficial owners of assets. My second point, and it's kind of related, but it's a, it's a more philosophical point, which is that you started off by talking about the financial system. And that just seems to me to be um, uh, an easy description of something which is very hard to describe. So the bits of the, the global markets that are systematic are actually the public sector bits, right? The central banks, the BIS, 
the international political bodies who you, you listed. Those bits are quite systematic, and they're rule-governed, and they have accountability appointments. But the, the bits that are in the private sector are actually not very systematic at all. And it doesn't seem to me that they, although we can talk about the banking system, you know, that's made up of a lot of competing entities, different sizes, different locations, many of whose interests are in conflict. And many of the financial innovations or changes in the last 25 years, you mentioned derivatives, we could look at securitization, exchange trade funds. These are all disruptive innovations that, that led to some organisations um, diminishing in importance and eventually going out of business and other organisations growing in stature. So the idea that we're all system takers just seems to me to be wrong. You, you know, if you don't like the system, you can develop a new product, and if it's a good product, people will move to it. And you know, So the question is, Bitcoin, a new financial instrument, is a very real question. And if it is, then it's going to disrupt the system and it's going to provide people with opportunities they didn't have before. Now, there's a question about whether you want to regulate all this, but the idea that somehow there is a system that we're all forced to be takers of, and therefore immediately that raises claims of justice, just seems to me to be <coughs> not the case. The bits of the system that we have to take <coughs> are the bits that are run by the politicians and the regulators. The bits that are run by the private sector, you know, you can leave your bank. You don't have to bank with X, Y, Z. You can do something different if you want. So I think that, that argument, you aligned it very quickly <coughs> systematic to claims of justice. And I, I just I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done there to make your claim of justice safe. So maybe three things that I briefly want to say something about. The first point you made was um, the stamp duty in the context of the UK didn't have any of the beneficial effects and so on that I, that I talked about. Right? Um, maybe that's because many of the beneficial effects, or at least preventing the adverse effects, are specific to an international financial system. Right? So the mechanisms I described, um, which explain how the international financial system has an adverse impact, effect, impact on, for example, effective democratic sovereignty, that's a feature that's genuine to the international financial system. Right? There is no equivalent or analog to that particular mechanism in the domestic UK context. <coughs> right? So I guess that would be the general line of responding to that sort of question. The second question um, or comment was on um, was on, of course, the, the, the tax will be passed on, um, and that may raise <coughs> issues. It may be a mistake um, to think that the, the banks or those engaged in the transaction will end up pay, paying the tax. And I think that's, that's a worry um, one has to take serious. The question is, I mean, are there any other ways of, of regulating or intervening in ways which you may want to intervene or regulate, they don't have that effect, right? So maybe um, the international financial transaction tax is in the same boat as any of the other um, proposals or mechanisms mentioned and talked about, right? I mean, some people turn against the international financial transaction tax and say um, something like the value-added tax for banks, for example, is the right is the right solution, right? Rather than taxing transactions, introduce something like a value-added tax. Um, and I guess when it comes to these taxes, your worry would be would be the same, right? Or, or are there any are there any um, attempts of if you believe that it has to be brought into line with the requirements of justice that don't have that that don't have that effect, right? And that would be that would be a question I would maybe raise in 
in response. Final point, um, I agree that speaking of the financial system is maybe um, too simplistic, that one needs a more fine-grained um, fine picture. Um, I would still want to say probably that even when it comes to private interactions on, on markets, it still makes sense to speak of something like an international financial system because there are institutions that structure and regulate what's happening on markets. Right? Markets don't just exist out there, but they're structured, embedded into, into institutions that structure these these interactions. Am I a system taker um, or not? I feel like a system taker. <laughs> okay, uh, we have six minutes and three more questions, so I hope uh, you can keep it to two minutes each. Yeah. So I'd be interested to, to hear what your what is your bottom line required to justify the financial transaction tax? Because obviously there's a huge amount of debate over the empirics of it. So what is the least that you need to do to justify um, the tax? Um, the reason I ask is because I think all of the failures in the current system, you list them, we're implementing a huge wave of reforms to deal with them, which are much more surgical responses than the broad-based um, impact of financial transaction tax, which is what I'm guessing the government response would be to why we're doing them and not a tax which comes down to then capital mobility is your issue, and then you're also raising some revenue. Capital mobility, I would again go to an empirical question. I feel that capital might not flow to these markets if they're worried that they'll get taxed hugely for taking them out in the first place. Um, and then you're boiling down to a revenue-raising question. If we raise a lot of money in the UK and in the US where a lot of these transactions are taking place, is that benefiting the people who are suffering the most from the financial system? And does this then just kind of degrade down to a there is global inequality that should be corrected? Should I respond directly or do we collect questions? I'd respond directly because I will forget. I think it's easier for you. Yeah. So I guess the, the bottom line of the argument would be um, I hope I'm not repeating too much what I have been saying. So think of three different versions of the international financial system. The current version, the version with the surgical fixes that you mentioned, and the version with the international financial transaction tax, I would argue that the version with the international financial transaction tax minimizes the greatest complaint through a variety of different mechanisms, hopefully not relying on too controversial empirical um, assumptions. But I haven't said anything about how the revenues <coughs> should, be, should be distributed. Right? That's an independent question which one has to think about. How should the revenues be distributed, let alone how, how do we organize the distribution of the revenues and so on, making sure um, that the important and right problems are actually addressed by the distribution of the, of the revenues. So I think that's an independent question we would have to, we would have to address. Uh, yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I, I share many of the concerns people have raised, but perhaps uh, I want to try a uh, more constructive angle, perhaps. I think I think I agree with the gentleman to my left here that it would be good to focus a lot more on the first half of your argument. So I feel as though in that sort of area you're on more solid ground. It's a really interesting argument about extent, extending some sort of maximum principle to the international financial system, and that there are interesting questions about how you cash that out. And I feel as though once you move to the second part, dealing specifically with the Tobin tax, you start to then reach a bit more shaky ground. Um, I think it's partly a question of who your audience is as well, I guess, because many economists and many policymakers don't regard Tobin taxes 
in any way justified by economic rationale. And so it, it might just help your earlier argument, the philosophical argument, to, to have more currency of your audience if you change say, the argument about Tobin tax to something more like, I don't know, something that's, that's more general agreement on, say, like a leverage ratio or, or capital and uh, liquidity reserve requirements. Because once you're talking about Tobin tax, I think empirically your, your, your case is, 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 you know, is very questionable. And that loses the respect that you might have gained in the earlier part of the <coughs> Thank you. That's that's helpful. I mean, if if you are a competent economist and interested in these issues, give me your card afterwards. And <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, one minute. The last question. You'll have to keep it short. I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I just have a question more about the second part, specifically about your appeal to what I take to be not so much maximum, but rather a Scandinavian criteria of justifiability to each person. Um, and whether the problem of paralysis that Scandinavian contractualism is often have to give rise to in non-financial context doesn't in fact apply in the financial case in a way that would give us reason to reject your alternative compared to a broader array of alternatives than those you presented. And if so, whether reconciling your suggestion with Scandinavian contractualism in fact requires you to <coughs> modify the received version of that theory. Um, to illustrate very briefly, in the, in the number I think there's probably not enough time for the illustration. There's only about 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so but I'm sure you'll have time to talk after, so we just have a quick yeah. response on that. So I guess the quick response would be um, apply the Scandinavian framework in the following way. Fix the versions of the international financial system you're comparing to begin with. Right? And you may be talking about different versions for different purposes of the argument. But if you're interested in policy proposals, fix feasible versions and apply this Scandinavian framework to comparing different feasible versions, right? If um, you're not so much interested in immediate policy change, you can expand and talk about um, even more fancy ways of reforming the international financial system, which then probably would succeed in passing the justificatory requirement rather than the less ambitious um, reform proposals. Thank you very much for um, all your questions.